Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Eigelmiller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. Joining us today is Rachel McCoy, the clinical lead for school-based programs at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and a licensed professional clinical counselor. She has been with Children's for six years. Oh, and don't be surprised if you hear a new voice this week. Our podcast editor, Aaron Horn, will also be popping in with a few comments and questions as well. Rachel, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So to kick things off, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and the work that you do? Sure. I am a licensed clinical counselor with Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I work in the the, uh, psychiatry division in our school-based services program. And I've been with the program for about six years and I am a clinical lead, which means I have the privilege of leading a team of 15. Our our school-based therapists are divided up into different regions. So I cover the east side of Cincinnati, which includes uh, Madeira, Indian Hill, Sycamore, Ursuline, uh, and two of our CPS schools. Fairview German and Clark Montessori. So um, what trends are you seeing surrounding mental health at children's during the COVID pandemic right now? So I can speak to two different categories of that. The first being across the division and across uh, the hospital within psychiatry. And then I can speak a little bit about what our school-based teams have seen. So within psychiatry, we have seen our demand for services continue to be high. And even during the shutdown, our services continued at the same rate and the same visits that we had before, even as the division shifted to delivering all of those services over telehealth. We are running our typical capacity still with about 70% in the division being telehealth and 30% being back to -to face-to-face visits. We're seeing parents have anxiety about school and what that might look like for their family and how they'll juggle all of the different ways that school is being delivered right now. Some parents are feeling the loss of the support that they get from the school setting. And so for kids who might have some really unique needs that are well supported in a school setting, to have the loss of that, uh, parents are struggling with knowing how to um, supplement some of those same supports at home. Um, And then in the emergency room, the volumes are rising um, as they typically do this time of year uh, as we see kind of the return to school and the stressors that that brings to um, children's lives. For our school-based therapists, um, we're seeing a rise in suicidal ideation for kids that are learning remotely as the school year has started and kids are either in a mixture of being at home and in the building or many of these districts who have given families the option to do, you can do one or the other. For those kids who fa- whose families have chosen to stay home, the kids who are home all the time and knowing that 
their friends are back in the building, there's a real gap there. And so we're seeing um, some rises in how they're feeling isolated and lonely and the tendency to just continue to withdraw even further is really there. Um, and so our, our therapists are still in contact with many kids that are in that situation, but that, those are some of the themes that they're reporting to us about kids that are doing the remote learning. Um, our clinicians are talking with families about just weighing those risks and benefits for physical health versus mental health. I had a therapist tell me that uh, parents are asking her almost sort of her medical opinion about whether or not they should send their children back to school. And she said, I I'm not a doctor. I can't speak to the physical risks, but I can tell you that it's good for your, your child to be around other children. And this continued mm -hmm. isolation is not good over the long term. And, and she can speak to it from that perspective. But it's a real struggle for many families to really figure out what do I do because no answer really feels right or safe because uh, there, are, there are pros and cons to each of the situations. Some of the kids are fearful about going back to in-person learning if they're not doing that already, just wondering what it might be like and how it might feel. We do notice that kids need and thrive on routines. Um, and then parents who are really anxious and fearful about COVID for whatever reason, they do pass that state on down to their kids. And so um, kids kind of have a, a capacity that is met for their ability to understand everything that is going on. And so they may not display the same exact fears about COVID, but they can pick up on that anxious and fearful energy from their parents. Um, some good things that we're seeing, we, we're seeing a lot of resiliency. Um, one of the things that many of my school partners were talking about is this fear about how will these kids who have been out of a traditional school setting since March, how will they um, adjust to these routines again? How will they adjust to these environments? Uh, and we're just anticipating a lot of impact in the actual return to school. And we're finding that, that kids are doing really well with that. Um, we're not seeing a lot of struggle in the return. Um, they're, they're really resilient and they're adapting to changes in their environment about having to wear masks and, and their days look really different than they usually do. And many of them are just kind of rolling with it and carrying on with, in really positive ways. And so that's a good thing. And our, our clinicians have talked about what they've seen in teachers. And we've seen teachers in uh, all of our partnerships who are just going above and beyond for kids. Um, and many of them have reported, um, especially in some of our urban schools, that some of the kids who would be less likely to access help um, either outside of school hours or even within the school day are, are finding that to be easier. They don't have to worry about how to stay after school or worrying about a stigma of other people seeing them stay after class or something like that. And so they're finding that some of these kids who maybe have been struggling in the past that would have been less likely to pursue additional help or support are actually doing that because of the ease of access of doing that online. And it, it feels, with, with the distance, it feels a little bit easier for them to do. And they're really happy about what they're seeing there. It's really encouraging to hear that there are still positive things that happening as a result of a virtual environment. Okay, so we've heard a lot of people talk about um, all of us experiencing collective trauma or collective grief in different ways during COVID. Can you explain this for those that might not understand this saying? So it's the experience that everyone is going through the same challenges at the same time, as well as the fact that these losses are cumulative in nature. This can lead to 
heightened fears and vigilance and even a loss of identity. But it's the kind of the net effect of these chronic fears and stressors and having to live in this perpetual state of anxiety actually causes our brains to operate differently and it generates these protective emotional responses. So my losses within COVID may not be the same to yours, but we've all lost something along the way. And I think the biggest change to that is, is, or the big common thread between all of that is a loss of certainty. We don't know what a lot of stuff is going to look like. Um, And we really enjoy just being able to know what the next couple of months are going to look like, what our vacations are, or how, how they're planned out. Um, what sports our kids are going to be playing, all of these things. And I think one of the biggest themes of this year is we just don't know. That's just a big question mark. And there's some security found within knowing what's ahead. And and we don't know what's ahead. Combined with fears about um, financial stress, uh, physical health, all of these things, and they all kind of stack up uh, um, together. I noticed this as a clinician when I was working with um, some of my clients during the shutdown, and it was very strange to be in a state where I was going through something very similar as they were. That's not normally the case. Normally, there's a separation between my story and your story, but all at once, we're all living kind of the same story, um, and we're in the same spot. Um, There's this quote that I like about how it says, I sat with my anger long enough to realize that it was grief. And I feel like as a society collectively, we're all very kind of um, just tense and easily angered right now. And that's evident in a lot of the things that we see just even in the news. Um, but we've just lost a lot and we're all kind of going through it together. So the, the collective nature of that is that um, it's happening to all of us uh, in, in one way or another. So it's interesting, and I'm sure, I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but, you know, we do a lot of work with schools, and what we hear is, is that the adults in a lot of cases are in, are, it's, it's harder for them, this, this collective trauma is harder for them to adjust to, because they're the ones that are making the plans, they're the ones that are most impacted, and the kids, actually, it's building their resiliency a little bit, mm-hmm. if the adults in their, in their sphere know how to handle it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think kids can be a little more um, bendy, like, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, adults who maybe have been doing things a certain way for 20 years and are suddenly thrown this curveball, it, it can be a lot. Well, I think about, like, just looking at my own kids, um, like, every day they don't totally understand what they're doing or where they're going to be. And then a lot of times we'll think we're doing one thing just pre-COVID. And then all of a sudden, like, this happens, so we're not. So they're just more adaptable because they're forced to because we have to make decisions each day that constantly change based on this kid's issue or that kid's issue. Right, right. Um, whereas, like, as adults, we are, like, I know the things that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of – I don't have to adjust – big things because to them that day feels big right to me that day feels just normal yeah I think about it that way and it makes sense like Mm -hmm. they just are in that space more frequently than I might be Um, so long term I think it'll be better for the kids if they're building this resiliency because I I mean at least in you know what we see a lot of times is kids haven't been 
in, in yes. this space, working yeah, on their I resiliency agree. I, very I think much. This, I've said to my husband before, I think this is their, um, I had to walk uphill both ways in the snow type of moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And I don't, <laughs> exactly. right. I don't, I don't know that <laughs> they're going to have their war the, story. Know, I don't know that there's a ton that's bad about that. Certainly there are exceptions, but um, you know, it, yeah. it, it's, it's building something within them. And I think as adults, we have to re- remember that the same is true for us. If we, if we find right. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. But I also think it's important to note too, that what you're saying is if the adults can help teach how to manage. Yeah. So it's important for us as the adults to start learning. How do we, um, how do we help ourselves so that we can help them? Right. Um, because if I'm so anxious and so nervous, they're going to feel that like you were mentioning. And so it's really important. It's even more important work for me to now start managing and verbalizing like, well, mom's really sad about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we could do this instead. Right. Or when I feel this way, I do. And so we're teaching those resiliency skills in a very small way, right? Uh, but helping them. So as they do get older, they're like, oh, I remember when or whatever they can lean on that learning. Yeah. Um, so the more we as adults can work on learning different strategies and coping techniques, the better those kiddos will be. And, and I think what you're saying too, about the teachers showing up in so many beautiful ways for the kiddos who might not have the parent that has the capacity to do that. The teacher can step into that role. Not that they have to, um, but maybe the building can do it too. I don't want to put more on them, but that's really important work. It's not just the content that you're teaching. Absolutely. Um, You're teaching them how to build resiliency right Mm -hmm. now. Um, Yeah. So it's hard and beautiful work. Yeah, it really is. I think there was a lot of debate over the summertime about what do we do about schools um, and working in a public school setting for most of my career, I have this front row seat to see what individuals in school buildings will do for children in a variety of ways that are beyond education. And so I, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's just something that can't really be replaced for some of our kids. And uh, I'm just a big fan of what this community aspect gets to do for kids that may be missing some of that in other places in their life. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to weigh that against a a pandemic. Um, but these are the building blocks that they put, put forth for these kids are really powerful. Uh, and it's, it's not even just the teachers, it's the people in the building that they see every day that know their name and their story and they say hi to them. And, um, and, you know, to miss out on that for long periods of time is a, is a real, is a real tough thing. Yeah. A lot of people are probably feeling like they don't really know how to like take care of their wellness right now, um, or have the time really to adopt any like new wellness strategies. Um, and and this goes beyond just school too. This is for everybody. Um, so do you have any tips for people that have limited time or, um, and, or financial means? Yeah. My encouragement is to just start small. So, you know, um, practicing breathing and meditation costs you nothing and doesn't cost you really a lot of time. Getting into nature is really easy to do. Um, talking to a trusted and, and really healthy friend is, is easy to do. Um, journaling, exercising, all those things that 
you know, we know that we should be doing, but we, we might resist for one reason or another. Um, but instead of feeling like we have to focus on everything all at once, I would say to just pick one or two areas to focus on and go from there. Um, there's that book, Atomic Habits by James Clear that talks about kind of the, the collective power of really small changes. And so uh, if you know at some point you need to, to pursue counseling, but you're not ready to or not able to, there are things that can be done in the meantime within those categories. Um, I would even say, you know, talking to somebody that you know that um, just seems like they have have their stuff together in a way uh, and just see if you can glean anything from, from their habits and what they do. Um, and there's a lot of reading that you can do. And so um, there's books that can support any type of disorder that you might be coping with. And so there's a lot that can be done uh, in the absence um, of, of pursuing professional help. I'm certainly a big fan of that as a clinician myself, but um, not everything ends there. There's plenty of stuff that can be done along the way. But I would just really start small. And another thing is um, to try and li limit your media intake um, because there's so much media to be found and not a lot of it is great right now. And I don't know that um, many of us are talking about how, how bad it is for us to be consuming media all the time, especially in 2020. And so it might be that you need to just step away from some things that are, are taking your energy and, and making you more stressed out. It's so true. It's, um, it's, it, it's the, the media, you know, a lot of people, like Erin was just talking a little bit earlier that she deleted her Facebook account. Um, I know several other yeah. people that have done the same thing because it's the, the news that we're getting is so emotional right now. Mm -hmm. And it's just over time, it just really wears on you. It does. Well, it's, um, we've talked about this and Nancy and Kayla have heard me say this before, but a friend of mine was talking about parenting yourself. Um, and so recognizing what's adding, what's taking away from your energy, what's draining you and then setting a limit around that. Yeah. So I don't have to go off Facebook completely, but I don't need to have it on my phone. Yeah. Um, or I need to, I notice that I'm really overwhelmed. So I need to go on a walk. Mm -hmm. um, and then also to your point, if you don't have the financial means or the, you know, whatever might be getting in the way of seeking professional help, if that's where you're, you're kind of headed, are there, like you're saying, are there other people in your life that can show up in that, in a similar way? Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's a, we talk, when I did one of the other programs, we talk about like who in your community is that like wise person. Right. Um, and not that you're going to learn a technique from them, but at least being able to talk through something that might be weighing on you, um, to get it out. Yeah. Same thing as journaling. Um, but who, you know, maybe it's a faith-based person, maybe it's a community member that you really look up to, maybe it's that mentor, um, but who in your network can support you in a way if you don't have the ability to access, um, the professional help, but as an organization, we are always advocating for professional help. Right. Yes. Um, and if you don't know how to do it, you can send us a note and we will send you ways to access that, um, and try our best. Um, but yeah, there's, there's more than just one box, mm -hmm. one way, one path. Um, so thank you for sharing a lot of those. So why don't you talk a little bit more about the resources that exist in the school setting right now, the, um, the school-based services, how they work, how people access them, how it's communicated, that kind of thing in a school. 
Sure. So um, Children's is in, uh, we have 50 school-based therapists in our program, and we are in a number of districts, but it's a very common experience for schools across our region to have a school-based therapist uh, kind of in-house. Um, typically, if parents are interested in getting their child connected to those services, they would start with um, a school counselor or a school psychologist. Uh, our referrals are often kind of funneled through those individuals in a school Sometimes they will even come from administrators or teachers. Um, but if, if a parent is aware of the services in their building, reaching out to someone in that position can kind of connect them to the right person. Um, our MindPeace um, Cincinnati kind of has their website that lists all of the therapists in the schools that they're in. And so um, their website has uh, a listing for both, uh, I think, Cincinnati Public and then also districts that are um, not in Cincinnati Public. So, uh, but the, the sessions are typically billed out to the child's insurance. And so when I'm meeting with a family, it's as if they were bringing their child to an outpatient location uh, from children's, but the location happens to be in their child's school building. Uh, and we're able to provide all of those same services. Also, in some of our sites, um, even medication management. And so I have uh, an advanced practice nurse that uses my office twice a month to provide the medication support to kids that are on my caseload. We have that uh, ability in many of our districts as well. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. We, we kind of bridge yeah. the gap between school and home. And so um, having that uh, relationship with the child and the family provides the opportunity to kind of advocate for the kid in a way that maybe wouldn't happen. Uh, I think sometimes our clinicians are just involved in the work in a different way than an outpatient therapist would be. Many mm -hmm. times that's a, a very positive thing because we get to kind of see the whole picture. We know what might be impacting things from home and you know past history. We know the school environment well, and we know kind of the, the rises and falls of, of that space. And we're able to kind of stand in between both of those and, and kind of help um, deliver those services in a really unique way. Yeah, I think, it's, as you said, it's a beautiful thing, that relationship that MindPeace has created with all of the school-based therapists. Yeah. Um, they're in about, they're in over 180 schools in greater Cincinnati now. And I, um, I think that it's a, it does bridge that gap between the school, the family, and the community really beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the schools do a great job of communicating that out to people, of, of, you know, of identifying kids that they think need additional help and getting them into services. And it's also so much more convenient for the child yes. to actually be in the school setting and not have to be picked up and taken to someone else. And mm -hmm. so definitely. And I, I think um, I find at least that the amount of kids that we're able to reach for that very reason is, is huge. And, um, and it's, it's sort of a thing where a lot of times if, if parents are needing to seek additional help for their child, things may have gotten really tough before they're able to kind of really run after that outside of, outside of the home because they're, they're ready to do whatever they need to do. In, in order. And so a lot of times we'll get referrals for kids whose behaviors are uh, our symptoms are not necessarily at that level, but we're able to intervene sooner because of the ease of access to care and we'll provide that safety net to keep things from getting worse and to, to keep things from getting to that level. And so um, I think parents really recognize that 
and are, are, are really willing and ready to, to get those services going because it, it doesn't take more time out of their already busy days and schedules and, and happens uh, so easily. Right. So are there any other local resources that people should know about that could help them with their mental health or mental health resources? So um, for, for children's, we have uh, PERC, which is our psychiatry intake response center, and their phone number is 636-4124. And um, that number is, is used for children's, children and families who may be needing immediate and urgent care for, for their child, but they also are able to help connect children to um, not only services at children's, but also in the community. And so they have a ton of knowledge about, um, you know, if there's a waiting list at children's or um, if they can get in, if they need medication, they can get them connected to an appointment. But they also are very aware of what's happening within the community. And so if for some reason uh, children's does not make sense for that family, they're able to connect them either to, you know, maybe it's a school-based provider that they're not connected with already or um, a number of clinicians in the community. Um, Maybe they need a play therapist, um, but but Perk has is a wealth of knowledge and is really committed to not only keeping kids safe if there's an immediate need, but also connecting families to um, other needs that they might have, uh, either at Children's or beyond that. Um, the MindPeace website is really wonderful, and they've done a lot with um, these virtual calming rooms, um, and so we, we've sent kids and families there if they need sort of a place to go, um, if they are looking for just some resources on uh, mindfulness and self-care and that kind of thing. I refer people to the one in five website quite often. And then um, Mental Health America and, of Northern Kentucky and Southwest Ohio. Their website has information on um, crisis care if you need it, but also there's information about uh, how to find a pro bono counselor if you're needing that. Um, they have, I think they have a, a database of sorts of counselors in the area who offer um, services um, at no charge. So those are the ones that I like. Great. So is there anything we missed? <laughs> I don't know. I think, you know, the, the, the ways that we can take better care of ourselves and the ripple effect that that has on the people around us is really, I think, the most important thing that all of us need to hear and know right now. Uh, and, and because of that collective trauma and grief, you know, nobody has a guidebook to any of this and that's a real challenge. But, um, if I take good care of myself and I'm able to kind of model that for the people in my house and the people that I work with, uh, I have to know that that kind of has its own effect on them. And then hopefully the, they will take that. And, you know, I, I, I think there's just so much to be said about, the importance of, of caring for ourselves and just being aware of what's happening, not only to us, but those around us. Um, and because we are kind of all in this together in a lot of ways. Um, and I think with all the opportunities that we have to be divided right now, um, that that message of, you know, how can we support and care for one another in the best ways possible is really one of the most important things. And I hope that that message can supersede all the other noise that we find ourselves in the midst of at the moment. Yeah, let's, uh, let's concentrate on that. Everybody concentrate on that and they can collectively yes. rise the positive energy that we all need to survive this, this period. 
So Rachel, thank you for being with us today. You are a wealth of information. We love the work that you're doing in schools. You know, uh, one in five, we're all about prevention and getting ahead of it. So the services that you're providing are, are such a critical part of that. So thank you for being with us today and sharing your knowledge. Um, we hope you have a rest of the, the rest of the weekend is great for you. Go outside and enjoy this beautiful weather. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was really good to be here. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we're changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And as Rachel shared, it is so important that we tend to our own wellness so that we can tend to the wellness of those around us. So next week, we'll look at how we can better take care of our mental health amidst a global pandemic, racial and social injustices, and the 2020 election season. We'll talk in depth about these issues with Machen Champion, Director of Child Clinical Services and Outpatient Lead for Catalyst Counseling. Machen is a licensed professional clinical counselor, registered play therapist, and a certified child and adolescent trauma professional. See you then. You belong.